I invite you to stand together and turning in your Bibles, if you have them, I'm going to turn to Galatians chapter four. We have few Bibles available, and if you're using those, this is printed on page 974. Galatians 4, and I'm only going to read verses 4 through 5 today. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, open our hearts and our minds and all that that is us to embrace your word, to hear it, and for it to lead us into a new calendar year calendar year set by the, the pulse of your word and by, Lord, the impulse of your love. In Christ Jesus, we pray this. Amen. What child is this? If you are familiar with a Christmas carol that goes by that name, I'm sure many of you know it. What child is this? It just repeats that question over and over again. It's my personal favorite. It's a hymn in our, um, our hymnal, but I actually haven't had us sing it today because we just sang it last week. And so I thought, they know what I'm talking about. They, they know the hymn, what child is this that lays to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. And that question that gets asked over and over and over again, we know that's an important question that, our, our culture considers this time of year and that we ought to consider every season of our lives. What's so special about this baby lying in the manger that scripture talks about? What is it about him that sets him apart and that is so significant? You know, how does, how does scripture answer that question? First, how would you answer that question if someone asked you, what, what's the big deal about this child in the manger that everyone's talking about? And how does scripture help us to answer that question? How would the apostle Paul answer if he was asked, what child is this? And what we see in Galatians 4.4 is the Apostle Paul laying that out, laying out what the scriptures teach about this child, about this one named Jesus. And in this sermon and in this text, there are no, no big surprises. My aim this morning is really that you will just be shaken with a fresh reminder of what we believe and what we ought to hold fast to every day of our lives. You know, it's one of those sermons uh, that, that comes the day after um, many of you celebrated Christmas. But then before we, we enter the new year, 
It's always a little bit difficult to, to figure out what, what to preach if you've you know, taking a, taken a short detour from, um, from your normal sermon series, which we have. We've taken a short detour from the book of Luke, and we've spent several weeks in the Psalms. But today I'd like to just pause and look at Galatians 4.4. Answer that question. What child is this? And to go into the new, the new year really grounded on those truths. And the first way that the Apostle Paul answers that question, what child is this? Who is this babe lying in the manger? Is he says, this is the babe who was born at the perfect time. The perfect time. You see that really rich phrase, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Now, babies don't usually arrive at the perfect time. You know, I... I some of you chuckle at, at that because, you know, if you've had kids or, you know, there's a due date that's set. But very rarely does that due date line up exactly with when the baby arrives. Usually the baby is a complete surprise. Uh, but with Christ, things are different. In fact, this baby that that arrives and is, is lying in the manger is the only babe to really arrive at the perfect, perfect time in history. The fullness of time, as God puts it. And there's many different ways that we can look at this. You know, think, let's think about some of the pieces that come together like a perfect puzzle that show that Christ arrived at the perfect time. Think about, think about how when Christ arrived you know, around 4 AD or 6 AD, they're, they're still trying to pin down exactly when um, you know, with the timetable. But when Christ arrived, it was the perfect Stage um, for him to arrive in the religious atmosphere of that day. You look at all the pagan religions, you know, the Roman gods and um, the Greek gods, and the people of the time had started to grow incredibly tired of the myths that they were told and that had become ingrained in culture. You know, they were, they were tired of hearing of, of these gods and they were looking for something real. And, for, and at this climactic time in history, people were actually searching in a desperate way for something that just lasted. And they were willing to let go of, of the gods of their tradition. But even in Israel... Even where God had spoken his law to his people and had revealed himself in a special way as the true and real and, and living God. Even there, there was a desperation that had reached a fever pitch. And what was that desperation? It was this, that people were longing for God to finally send his Messiah. People and Israel were under the burden of the law. They had learned the hard way over and over again how, how difficult it was to keep God's holy standards. And for the second time, God's people were under the heavy hand now of oppressors. Why? You know, first it was Babylon and, and, and Assyria, and then, and then here you have Rome over God's people. And they, this was a constant reminder of their failure to keep God's law and to live up to that standard that he had put before them. 
But they're looking to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament scripture saying, he's got to come sometime soon. He's got to fix our nation sometime soon. And, and really, he's got to come to fix our hearts sometime soon. And so that desperation had reached a, had reached a fever pitch. People were, were ready for good news, real, lasting news. And that's true not only in the religious atmosphere at this time, but also in the political atmosphere. You know, when, when Jesus arrived on the scene in human history, it was a time called Pax Romana, Roman peace, where Rome had, uh, through its military might and power, had reached this level where um, it had roads that, that ran you know, east and west and connected north and south. And there was this system and network of, of political peace, you could call it in a certain way, that united cultures and peoples like you'd never seen before. And the roads themselves were ready for good news to come in every direction, spreading across the ancient world like never before. Culturally, it was the perfect time for good news to arrive on the scene. Why? Because for the, for the first time in human history, you had common Greek becoming this language that united cultures and peoples so that there was this bridge that had been built for good news to go forth. It, it's something like we've never seen in any time. What's happening as all these different puzzle pieces are locking into place? We're seeing that this is not just some, you know, random happening in the, in the cogs of history. No, this is God organizing events, bringing them all together under his sovereign hand so that at the perfect time, not too soon, not too, not too late, Christ arrives right on schedule. It's like every event of history, way back, reaching way back and reaching way forward. It's like they are the pieces of a puzzle and Christ's birth is that piece that completes it all. Who is this child? What child is this? He is the child born at the perfect time. But that's not all. He is the child who was born of woman. It's what we see next in our text, right? You, you see, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. Now, what's so surprising of that, about that? Do you all, does anyone here not have a mother? No, you know, this is the most human thing you can say. You know, we all have a mom. No surprise, no surprise, you're talking about a baby lying in the manger that the baby is going to be born of woman, crying out, reaching out for their mom. I know, my son is saying, Dada. <laughs> you, that's exactly right, Frazier. That's what's missing in this text. Where's dad? Right? It, in fact, if you were reading this in Paul's day, this would be jarring to read, born of woman. Because, look, look at the genealogies way back in Genesis. Look at the genealogy in Matthew. Women are not frequently mentioned. It's, you know, the son of, and, and the father's mentioned. 
And so when you see born of woman, that should jump out at you and say, whoa, something is off here. And indeed, no mention of a human father. Why is that? Because Paul knows and the scriptures confess that Jesus had no human father. He was born of a virgin. What we mean by that has incredible implications. I mean, this is, this is like earth shattering stuff. It means this, that this baby has a past that reaches before his birth. He has no human father because God himself is his father. Not, not physically, but in all eternity. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And so we see in this passage, verse four, God sent forth his son. Jesus is the only person in human history to ever be truly man, born of the substance of Mary, but able to say, my history reaches back far, far, far into eternity itself. And say in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, we're starting to fill in the, the picture of who this child is lying in the manger. This little baby squirming around. You know, needing, needing comforted and, and held close by his mother. He is the uncreated master of the universe. The one who arrived at the perfect time is the one who himself weaves the strands of time together. Now, that is the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation. That's what we call it. God becoming flesh and dwelling with us. And all of that is packed into this phrase, born of woman. Born of woman. Fully God and yet fully man. Born of Mary. Of her very substance in her womb. And yet, existing for all eternity. Now, can you wrap your mind around that? I I hope you can't. Because you're not supposed to. Um, I don't think you can. Why would God become man? Leads us to the third amazing thing about this child. What child is this? He's the one born at the perfect time. The one born of woman. And then Paul goes on to say this. That this child sent forth by God as God's son. Was sent forth in verse 5 to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the third thing we must confess as we answer that question. What child is this? He is the child born to rescue us. Rescue us from what? If you turn back to Galatians 3, look at verse 10. We see it spelled out for us. It says this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. What do we need rescued from? Simply this, brothers and sisters, that God has an unchanging standard of how we ought to live. And that standard is unchanging because it reflects him and his very nature. 
And he has stooped to reveal to us in his own words how we ought to live. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And, and, And more obviously, the whole fabric of law woven together to teach us in simple but clear terms how we ought to live. And yet, from the very beginning, from our first father, Adam, has even one of us kept that perfect law revealed by God? No. None of us have. But instead, it's like we've broken that perfect mirror of God's law. It's like a, it's like a mirror. And then imagine if you break a mirror, I've used this illustration before, Right? You see the, the cracks and the fragments go in all kinds of directions. And that's why Galatians says this, that if you've broken even one part of the law, then you've broken all of it. Kids, if you've ever, have you ever felt within you, you know, that, that desire to say no to your, to your mom and dad when you know that, that you, you really should be listening to them? God's law says, God says, if that even happens once, you say, well, you know, that's just a little thing, right? You know, I can move past that. God's law says, no, you've broken the entire law from beginning to end. You say, what? How is that fair? Well, it's fair because of this, because God, God's law reveals who he is, his perfect, unchanging standard. So that if we have even at one point turned away and, and, and neglected his law or, or resisted it or tried to do it ourselves in a way that fails. If we've done that even at one point, what we deserve is curse. The opposite of blessing. Separation from God. Far from his loving presence. His child then is born to rescue us from that, from that curse, that sting of God's law. How did he do that? How did he do that? Look at Galatians 3 again, and look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us, he rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's how that baby lying in the manger came to rescue us. He himself was born under the same weight of the law that we are. But he himself did not come as a sinner, as one who had broken the law, but as one who could uphold it. When Christ was born under the law, what was it like? It's like he took upon his shoulders the full weight of the law. And, and, and there it was, weighing down on him his, his whole life. Keep the law, obey God, love him, serve him. And guess what? Christ took every step doing that. And yet he died on the cross. Why would Christ, the only one who, who upheld the full weight of God's law, why would he have its awful curse and weight come crashing down on him? Well, he did that 
in our place, in the place of all who would look to him by faith. Christ came to die to take the sting of the law that we deserve. He did that to remove the curse, to take the punishment of breaking God's law upon himself. He came to die. This is so important that Christ's sacred birth always pointed forward to his sacrificial death. In fact, that's why the early church often, um, or, or why they came to celebrate Christ's birth on December 25. You know, if you've, you've maybe heard, you know, why, why December 25th? Why did the church throughout history kind of single out that date? And one of the answers has been, well, it must be a pagan ripoff, right? You know, it's the winter, time of the winter solstice where, where false gods um, were to be celebrated a time of, 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 of you know, death and rebirth and that kind of thing. But actually, the early church had an answer that was different from that. Um, they had a reason that was not grounded in being a pagan rip, ripoff, but instead was grounded in what Christ came to do. Because the early church believed that Christ's death was so important. It was so important that Christ came to die that he must have died on the same day that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, is that true? I don't know. I, the, the scriptures don't explicitly teach that. But, but it was important for the early church to confess that this one who was conceived was also the one who was going to die. And if Jesus died on the calendar date of March 25th, uh, is, is what we believe when uh, the date is in the scriptures. If he, he, if he died on that day, and if he was conceived on that same day, then nine months later would be December 25th. That was their reasoning. Now, am I asking you to embrace that? No, I'm not. What I'm asking you to see is that throughout the history of the church, it was so important to confess that this Savior who was born and conceived in the womb of the Virgin was born to die. That was his destiny from the very beginning. And so we cannot separate the incarnation from redemption. We cannot separate the, the darkness of the womb from the darkness of the tomb. And what does this all mean? It means this, that Christ, this one who was born, who squirms in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the manger, is the only one who can free us from that curse of the law that weighs heavy on our souls. And he can free us from that because he suffered and he died. What curse breakers deserve to die by hanging on the tree. He took the curse upon himself so that we can have not only that curse removed, but also our inheritance restored. That's the second part of his rescue. And that's the ultimate goal of all of this. Why did that child go to die? Because then he could, by taking upon himself our curse, he could give us something that we never deserved. It's simply this, inheritance. Inheritance. Adoption as sons, as Paul puts it here in Galatians 4, 5. You know, as I've reflected on some of the, the movies of this season, you know, Christmas movies, I've thought of, there's a common theme that kind of runs throughout them. And it's, it's, a, 
a theme that expresses a deep longing of the human heart. And it is the theme of belonging to someone. Belonging to a family. Go no further than home alone, right? And what do you see? You know, the kid's stuck at home and he comes to realize, ah, Christmas would be great. Actually, not, not if I'm just doing everything I want, but if my family's with me and I have a sense of belonging. And you see that theme run throughout all kinds of movies. This, this, this kind of theme that um, you can have everything you want, but, if you, but if, you, if you really have family and friends, then you're getting somewhere. And then, then you're get, getting to the, uh, the heart of true blessing. And guess what? Scripture, scripture doesn't pander to that, but it does fulfill it. Because scripture tells us that the great blessing of what Christ does is he not only removes the curse of the law, but he gives us a family. Because he took the curse. What do we receive? We receive the same name, the same rights, the same inheritance as the son of God. And the son of God says, let me take the weight of your sin so that you can take that glorious weight of being a son and heir of God himself for all eternity called sons of God and the privilege to pray to God, Abba, Father. Our father who art in heaven. That's the ultimate goal of all this. What child is this? Who is this babe lying in the manger? He is not some holiday icon. He cannot be pinned down to one season. He is the center point of human history. He is the uncreated son of God. He is flesh and blood of Mary. He is the redeemer who suffered for our sins. Why? So that instead we can be restored to fellowship with God. He is the one who has a sacred birth and a sacrificial death. And because he is risen from the dead, guess what? This Savior deserves your worship and your service every day, not just during a special season. Now, I'm looking out at a, at a people who, who I know believe this. I know you believe the Savior deserves your worship and service every day. But I think it's fitting that I would challenge us as we move into this coming year and as we resume, we take up our pace through, through uh, preaching through the book of Luke. That we would remember that this time of uh, the year where we have a, a specific kind of oomph to looking to Christ, that that wouldn't just be left behind, but we would take it with us. And as we now look to uh, you know, start a new Bible reading plan throughout the year as we turn to reestablish our, our patterns of family devotions, that all of this would really be done with an emphasis on the glory of this son and who he is. This savior deserves your worship, deserves your service every day, every day of the year. When we're talking about Christ this upcoming July, you know, I want us to have the same zeal and excitement that we've had this season that we, that, that, uh, that's called Christmas. And I think it deserves one more challenge 
for us. That this Savior deserves not only to be worshipped and embraced by faith, but also he deserves to be spoken of during every season. Sometimes we can, we think, oh, when our cultural climate and our you know, uh, cultural celebrations line up with, when they, when they overlap slightly with, um, with our worship, that's when people are ready to hear about Jesus. But I'd submit that actually every season is pumped and primed and people are ready by God's preparation to hear about this Savior. So if we're bold to proclaim who this child is, that he's not just a babe lying in a manger. He's not a man who, who gives us the best example of humanity. But really, he is God himself come to save sinners. Any sinner who looks to him by faith. If we proclaim this to a watching and a waiting world, then I believe that, that the God who has prepared human history for Christ's first coming will be faithful to have prepared hearts who will embrace this Savior and be ready for his second coming. Remember, this is the God who weaves all the strands of history to point to this Redeemer. He not only did that then, he's doing that now. So let's be faithful this upcoming season to worship this Savior and to proclaim him. Let's pray.